Eric Girl. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, cults, conspiracies, true crime, mysteries, paranormal, supernatural, or just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Uh, that's because it's our show and, and not yours. yours. You know, I actually have some exciting things going on this what week. What is it? Tell me. Um, I'm going to a new nail tech. Oh, big day. And I'm going to get some cool, fancy rock star nails. Ooh. Because next week is Josh and Laura's wedding. So Aww, Josh. Oh, yay. Hawkins. Congratulations. Hey, Joshy. Hey, Joshy boy. Josh was actually getting married next week. So I'll be at that wedding with my fancy new nails. Big old congratulations to Josh and Dr. Laura. <laughs> so exciting. Um, but also this week. I start my manager training for Halloween nights e- at Eastern State Penitentiary. You're Mr. Manager. I'm Mr. Manager now. We just say manager. Okay. It doesn't matter who. Oh. Okay. Um, so <laughs> You're Mr. Manager. But no, we just say manager. Oh, okay. So I'm the operations manager of the Speakeasy this year. I am so freaking excited. And, of course, uh, Halloween Nights is going to be opening at the end of September, but I start my my manager training this week. So, Yay. new nails, new me, new job, and then next week there's a wedding, and that's very exciting. And Val uh, is a bridesmaid. Aww. That's their nice gender-neutral term. Of course. Yeah. But because, Laura, uh, if you all don't know, but I think you do, but that's how me and Val met, actually. We met through Josh and Laura. I was in a play yeah. with Josh. Laura was his girlfriend at the time, his fiance now, will be his wife next week. (laughs) Um, But Laura and Val are best friends from middle school. Like, they've been besties forever. And that was how Val came to the show that I was in, and that's where we met. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. But now Josh and Laura are getting married next week, and I'm so excited. Congratulations. Congratulations to them. Josh, whenever you catch up listening-wise with the show... Because um, he is listening. He started, he started from, from the, the beginning. beginning. But he's been on the show before. We're going to have him back again this year. Very exciting for Guestoberfest. You'll hear more about that as it comes up. But we've got big, exciting things going on. Yeah. And this is a big week. We do. We do. Really big, exciting things. August is basically over. It's crazy. Oh, so Guestoberfest is around the corner. It's coming so get up. ready. This is our what? Our f- Is this the fifth one? 2018, 19, 20, 21, 22. This will be our fifth, fifth Guestoberfest. Guestoberfest. Wow. Who'd have thought this weird idea that we came up with because we were too busy in October to do research? Look would at us. Be, Who would have thought? Not be me. What it is now. <laughs> Not me. So exciting. It's going to be great. So tune in. We have big things coming up over the next few months as we get into wait. our spooky season. Y'all, Guestoberfest is going to be, it's always great. It's always, bomb. always great. We're really year, excited like, for our lineup. Yeah, it's it's going to be, be great. Really cool. We're yeah. really going to blow it out of the park this year. We can't year. wait to bring it to you. I know. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, can't wait. So we're just going to go ahead and dive into this let's week's episode. Let's dive into and it. Let's do it. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Leslie. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? His little ghost noise. So uh, it'll much. never get old. Never ever. Sarah, part three. Part three. Linda Hazard. Linda Hazard was dead to begin with. 
I mean, I guess at this episode, at the beginning it's, of yes, this episode. she's dead. Not the beginning of your story of her in the first place. No. Oh, my God. What if she'd been dead the whole time? Who is she? Bruce Willis? Yeah. And I guess all those people are also mediums Man, and I gotta fasting. I got to tell you, I know that that was an episode of the podcast. It wasn't an I Seen It where I told you about uh, <laughs> Sixth Sense. It started the legend uh, that is I Seen, I seen it, it. But... I have to tell you, even though I told you all about it, you knew what the ending was, and the fact that we watched it together, you still cried. I still cried. Proves to me how solid that movie is. I was like, you knew. You you knew. And still at the end, you're just like, oh, no. (laughs) Everyone knows what the punchline is for that movie, but you watch it because it is so good. But it's, yeah, it's so well done. You're like, I'm here for this ride. It's really good. So this is not that good of a story as that, but this is. But just like that story. From the beginning where we're starting, for the purposes of this story, she's already she's dead. dead. She's been yeah. dead the whole time. The whole so, time being this episode. Previously on Dead Time Stories, we heard about the rise and fall of Linda Hazard. And she died. And she died on her property that was on the property of Starvation Heights. Uh, but Starvation Heights did burn down a few years before she ultimately died from fasting. But we're not here to talk about her. We're here to talk about the spirits that seem to still be on that property. So even though Starvation Heights burned to the ground, the base foundation for where her house was, and I think the chimney and things, it's all still there. And it's still a home. And people would live in it, in and out. And I think to this day, it's there. And the person who lives in it is like, get off my lawn. Like, don't come here. Don't come near here. I don't want get you off around. My lawn. Like, get off my don't lawn. Don't come here. So there's not a ton of ghosts, I'll be honest about that, but it's a good bookend to this story. So apparently, years, like decades ago, the current owner of the house was doing work. They left a room. They came back into the room, and all of the chairs in that room had been stacked in a corner of the kitchen. So they left. It was the kitchen. So they left the kitchen, did something, came back, and just like Poltergeist, All of the chairs were stacked and put somewhere else. No one else was in the home. No one else around. They also get footsteps throughout the house, as well as in 2005, apparently, they had paranormal investigators in the home and they got EVPs that they say are voices saying, help us and dig us up. Oh, I don't like that one. Yep. So the thought is that these are the spirits of the people who died there. And it's thought that there are probably bodies buried on the property that no one knows about. And it's also thought that she cremated a lot of bodies and then just scattered the ashes around. And so there's all these just sort of unsettled spirits around that claim the area is haunted. So while Linda's spirit, Linda is dead to begin with, and her spirit doesn't seem to be around, the people that she starved to death oh are still God. there speaking out. And with that, what do they know? Do they know things? Let's find out. We didn't find out much because they're ghosts, but that's the end of our full saga story about Linda Hazard. Dang. But that's not the end of my ghost story. Right, I was like, well, that was really short. It was very short. So I have another ghost story for you. Okay. This one's pretty good. Every time I even think about this, I get chills. So this is about a shipwreck at the bottom of Lake Superior and the ghost that haunts it. Sure. Natch. 
Number one, as much as I'm a cancer, deep diving and things in the ocean, like in the sea, <laughs> scares the shit out sure. of me. So scary. Deep ocean stuff is terrifying. And shipwrecks. Terrifying. Shipwrecks. We know more about outer space than we know about the bottom of the ocean. And that to That's me scary. is scary enough. It's so scary. We know more about shit that is like, like light years away from billions, immeasurable miles away from us. We know more about that than the bottom of the ocean on our own fucking planet. And the things that we do see of the bottom of the ocean are fucking horrifying. So let's talk, apparently there's ghosts down there too. Yeah, I believe it. So let's talk about a ghost in Lake Superior. Spooky. So back I in- I mean, it's not an ocean, but yeah. It's not like, an ocean, yeah, but, still, but it's in the water. It's at. in the water. It's in the water. And it's deep. It's in the it's water. Deep. And it's creepy. Deep. It's scary. 1927, there was this freighter called the SS Kamloops, which just sounds like a cereal. I was thinking, I was like, Cam Loops, what do they taste like? So this ship, the Cam Loops, was going through Lake Superior in December of 1927. It got hit by a violent winter storm. Spoiler alert, it sunk to the bottom of Lake Superior. <laughs> I mean, that, you kind of That's how you get the ghost. It, right? Like, yeah. we started with there's a There's, there's a, a ghost in a shipwreck at the bottom of the, the, of the yeah. ocean. There's a ship in the bottom of the I sea. See, I was had there's, there's a ship in the bottom, bottom of the sea. sea. There's a ship. There's, there's a ship. ship. There's a ship in the bottom of the sea. There's a ghost in the ship in the bottom of the sea. There's a ghost in the ship. This is the rest of the episode. I hope you like it. There's a ghost. There's a ghost. There's a ghost in the ship in the bottom of the sea. There's more to it, but I don't want to give anything away. So, yes. There's a fish with a ghost in the ship in the bottom of the sea. Not really, because there's not a lot of life down there, because it is cold in the and it is cold on the ship in the bottom of the sea. It's cold with a ghost on the ship in the bottom of the sea. Now, search parties were sent out through the Great Lakes looking for the ship, all of them turning up with through, no evidence. Through all of Holmes. What? I just always remember that the lakes, all the Great Lakes, you remember them because they, they, the anagram is Holmes, but I can never remember what the H is because O is Lake Ontario, M is Lake Michigan, E is like eerie. eerie, S is like superior, but I can never remember what the fucking H is. Okay, sorry, go ahead. I've never heard that before. My mind is blown. So they were in the last of the homes. They were in the S, like superior. <laughs> I have to Google it. I'm so sorry. On the 26th day of searching, they stopped searching for the crew and the ship, and they were like, sorry, they were it's like, gone. We give up. It's gone. It's at the bottom of the, the, the bottom of the sea. <laughs> It's at the bottom of the sea. The official record states that all of the ship's crew were lost. So while no one is quite sure what caused the ship to sink, a few clues that were discovered paint a pretty horrific picture. Because it's at the bottom of the sea. I'm already scared. It wasn't until the spring. So this happened in December. It wasn't until... Lake Huron is the age. Lake Huron. Huron. Ontario, Michigan, Erie, Superior. Just in case you were wondering. That's what the H is. So it wasn't until the spring when they got the first signs of the Kamloops demise discovered by other fishermen. Scattered across an island nearby were the remains of nine crew members who had managed to escape the ship on a lifeboat. Some of the crew members were found huddled near a makeshift. I guess they froze to death. Well, some of them were found huddled near a makeshift fire pit with others washed up on shore. The ones who weren't frozen to death appeared to have been partially eaten by the island's wolf population. Oh, by the wolves, not by each other. Wolves. Yeah, not each other, just wolves. 
I'm like, what would be worse, to drown with the ship or to survive and then freeze to death or to survive and then get eaten by wolves? I don't. It, all I of it sucks. Freeze to death of the three, to me, I guess, sounds the least bad because they say yeah, it kind of go to feels sleep. like going to sleep. <laughs> so I guess if I had to choose our drowning, freezing to death, or going being to s- eaten alive by wolves. That's the last one. I guess I'm going to go with freeze to death. That is the last one. I hope, one. yeah. If I, I mean, to be fair, that's assuming I had the choice of the I don't think most people picked which one happened to them. They're like, no, no, no. Wolves, stay over there. I choose to freeze. I choose to freeze to death. No, no, no. Stay over there. I chose freezing. (laughs) I chose freezing. I chose freezing. I chose freezing. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. I don't consent. Back to the Kamloops. Being eaten by the wolves. The ship, however, while they found crew members, was still nowhere to be found. It went down in history as one of the ghost ships of the Great Lakes. This is not the only ship at the bottom of Lake Superior. I keep thinking of other things. I'm so sorry. Um, thinking Stop of, it. of being eaten alive by, by things. I remember when the second Jurassic Park came out. Not the first one, but the second Jurassic Park. I went to see it with my godfather who I was visiting at the time. I was in fourth grade. And there's a part where there are all these little tiny dinosaurs. They're like little bitty. Each one is maybe like three or four inches tall. And somebody falls in like a lake or a river or something. Somebody trips and is eaten by those. Like there's a bunch of tiny ones. And I remember my godfather saying to me (laughs) that that was probably so much worse and being eaten by like the T-Rex or the raptors. Because it's not as fast. Right. He's like, because they're so big that you would be dead pretty quickly. And he's like, if you got eaten by those, it would take such a long time. And I remember being in like fourth grade and that thought really upsetting me. Like, <laughs> like, oh, like oh. the idea of a slow death versus a quick. He's like, okay, bye. Glad we had this hangout time. Right. Back home like, I'm parents. already grappling with the idea that I will die someday as a fourth grader. <laughs> Let alone that it could be slow, <laughs> not quick. Terrible. I hate it. Back to the Kamloops that yes. had a slow death, a slow demise. So it got marked as just a missing ghost ship. We don't know where it happened, the what second, happened. Second. Let's find out. Now, is this also Lake Superior or this was a different of the lakes? No, this is all Lake Superior. This is okay. all the same ship, wow. which is the one ship. The Kamloops hit the storm in 1927, oh, went down. The second ship that went no, down. Okay, no. sorry. No, it's not the only ship that's at the bottom of Lake Superior. Got it. Okay. But this is the only one we're going to talk about. Okay, cool. But there are other ships down there. Yes. Wild. Yes. Dozens, yeah, dozens of ships also tend to just mysteriously vanish without a trace, which is scary. I mean, not to get on a damn boat. So it was about 50 years that it was just missing. No one knew. No one knew. Until it was discovered at the bottom of Lake Superior in nearly perfect condition. So it had lost and it had what slid over it on its down? side. I don't know, something with the storm. They claim that it appeared to have lost mm. power and slid down an underwater incline coming to rest on its side. So it's underwater and it's on its side. Mm. But it is in nearly perfect condition because the temperature of the water so in Lake Superior it, like, is it. 34 degrees. So it's not quite freezing. But almost. But it's almost. It's actually around the same temperature that they keep a dead body at. <laughs> Interesting. Foreshadowing, maybe. <laughs> There's a ghost in the ship at the bottom of the sea. There's a ghost. There's, There's a, a ghost. ghost. There's a ghost, ghost in the ship at the bottom of the sea. sea. Where'd the ghost from? It came from a person. There's a person who's now a ghost in the ship in the bottom of the sea. Maybe. Yes, there is. So divers went down and they couldn't believe how well preserved the ship was. Uh, they said that it's like 
even you see clothing and leather shoes still stacked neatly in cabins, like everything the way it was left. And it's all just pretty preserved and it's down there, which is scary. Let's just go back and let's imagine this. You're a diver. You're diving there. 80 meters down is where this shipwreck is. So it's dark as fuck. You just have your headlamp and you're panning around this shipwreck and it's obviously underwater, but it looks like everything is frozen in time. And then you pan around and you see a person, but it's not one of your diving crew. It's a person who looks like he's just going about his everyday tasks of taking care of the ship. He just happens to be underwater. And he's there. Because he's a ghost. Well, you he's just met Grandpa. He's a ghost in the ship in the bottom of the sea. He's a ghost. He's a ghost. He's a ghost in the ship in the bottom of the sea. His name's Grandpa. So that is His Grandpa name is the Grandpa. Ghost. They call him Grandpa. We don't know the name of this crew member, but it one crew I mean, member. His name isn't Grandpa. One crew that. member went down with the ship, and that's Grandpa. So they're just like, we just call him Grandpa. So divers go down, they explore the ship, and they have claims. And they hang out with Grandpa. They have claims of seeing Grandpa. Seeing Grandpa just, um, they claim that he would wander the boat going about his business as if he were still alive. I don't like it. It's too familiar. You don't know him. Don't call him Grandpa. They claim that Grandpa will reach out and touch them. Grandpa will just be bobbing beside them sometimes as they're going about their search of the dive. But the other thing is Grandpa's the ghost, but Grandpa's attached to the person who died down there. And he is also still there. So the preserved body of grandpa of grandpa is still in the ship. But they don't call that one grandpa. They don't call the corpse grandpa. They, they don't just call, call the ghost grandpa. Yes, get it right. The ghost is grandpa. The corpse is nicknamed Old Whitey. Old Whitey. <laughs> I hate it. And it's because due he's to old and white. He's it's because well, he also, he's extra white because he's a frozen dead body in the lake. Sure. So he is also very well preserved because he's been in the frozen water in the lake. And what it did. Let me find the actual if they Do you know have if it's it. a saltwater lake. You know what? I don't know. But basically because of him being in the water and it being so cold, he has basically become like the soap lady. Like it's all of the fatty adipose tissue forms a soap-like substance that preserves the body. So if you've gone to the Mutter Museum here in Philadelphia, the soap lady, that's how her body has been preserved. And that's what's happened to old Whitey. So he's covered in a soapy wax-like substance that has preserved his body. But what he does do is divers go down and they say that that body moves about the ship. I hate it. Because of the currents of the water. But how does it move about the ship? It bangs into a wall, a door, or something. I hate it. You're down there diving, and you turn to your right, and there's just a corpse there. You go to another room, you turn to your left, it's the same corpse, because he followed you in there. Oh, I was going to say, it's his ghost. Grandpa. They say they never see Grandpa and Old Whitey in the same room at the same time. <laughs> just saying. Those who'd heard the stories of ghostly encounters knew the truth. This Old Whitey is Grandpa's body. Explorers began to take notice of how Grandpa's corpse would follow them from the time they entered the ship until they left. They're exploring the ship and Grandpa's corpse is like, let me give you the tour of the place. Where his ghost is like, oh, again, I'll be in my room and leaves. Oh, 
<laughs> Some divers rationalize the moving of the corpse as just the current. However, others insist that it's completely unnatural and even intelligent in the way it moves about. Some even return saying that they had seen Grandpa's ghost and his body in the same trip, though never in the same room. In the same room at the same time. However, they say despite how frightening a visit from Grandpa is, there's never any reason for alarm. He's never attempted to hurt or drown anyone. He just anyone. spooks you because he's down there. He not spooks you because he he's down anything. there. He exactly. just walks around. Exactly. They say the ghost of Grandpa is just lonely. And even though the cur- even though the corpse is initially disturbing, it floats peacefully along next to the divers, and they even notice tiny small details like a wedding ring still attached to old Waddy's fingers. Him going by and he's like, "Hey, grandson," because <laughs> he's grandpa. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, divers. Hey, divers. To this day, today, the year of our Lord in two thousand and twenty-two. Grandpa's well-preserved corpse is still floating in the wreck of the cam loops well, at the bottom like, of the Superior. Why bring him up? They're not going to bring him up. He spends most of his time apparently occupying the engine room, and dive logs are filled with notes about shaking hands with Grandpa's, paying respects to old Whitey. And partially because of his corpse, the National Park Service has protected the shipwreck as a cultural treasure. So they will never bring it up and they will never, never bring, bring his body. Nope. And though they allow only the most experienced and respectful divers to explore the location. So not just anyone can explore it. And if you try to Google pictures of old Whitey, you won't. I'll have one that I'll show you. And it's really just showing you his legs because out of respect, they, they don't take pictures. take pictures of him. Yep. They don't take pictures. They are still no closer to understanding what exactly did make the SS Kamloops sink to the bottom of Lake Superior. Or who old Whitey is. That's exactly. No idea who he is. They don't know who that guy is. Which might be why Grandpa's still sticking around and haunting the ship after all these years. However, if you have the diving experience and you're respectful enough, you can go down there and pay your own respects to old Whitey and Grandpa down in the ship. The thought, this story was one of my other, I get a lot of my stuff from my calendar yeah. notes, you know, and this was another one of those. And when I was sitting in my office and I read it, when it got to the part where it was like, yeah, and then grandpa's the ghost and then his corpse is there and his corpse moves from room to room. Chills. I was scared. I was like, That's that is my creepy. nightmare. I'm ter- that it's terrifying. It's so scary. That would make the scariest video game. To be like playing as the diver going down there and then you just turn he's, and there's old Whitey. But he doesn't like jump out at you. He's, he's just, like just floating there. by. Oh, God. I, I hate, hate it. it. <laughs> I hate it. So that was the last part of Linda Hazard and her ghosts, as well as one of the ghosts from a shipwreck at the bottom of Lake Superior. You're welcome. Stephanie, what are you talking about this week? So... Uh oh, okay. She just rubbed her face and now she's getting into it. It seems like it's going to be deep. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I'm talking about another child murder. Why? Why is it so much child death? That wasn't on purpose. So, this story I was sure. already going to talk about previously. And I learned about Kendrick Johnson when I was learning about unusual deaths before that I talked about two episodes ago. Yes. This is a story I have thought about. I've never talked about it on the show. But Mary Angela brought it up to me recently because she was like, one, I'm surprised you've never talked about this case. And two, especially because of me talking recently, which this will give you a little insight into what I'm going to talk about. 
Um, uh, with what we've talked about so much lately with uh, talking about satanic panic. And she said that she thought that that's where I was going when I was talking about satanic panic. And then I was like, I've got another story coming up for you. She thought I was going to go into this story, not into Teal Swan. So shout out to Mary Angela, who reminded me about this case and brought it to my attention. It's a case that I knew about before. I like kind of want to guess, but also don't want to blow up your spot if I get it right. Like you did last time? Yeah. No, go ahead. Are you sure you're giving me permission? Yeah. Is it about the girl who died in the womb, the fake womb coming out of the womb? No. Experience? But I do know what you're talking about. Okay, cool. No. All right. Then, that is not right. what I'm talking no, about. No, no. So it? no, that is not related. So I'm not returning to regression therapy. Okay. I'm returning to satanic panic. And you'll understand how when I get a little more into it. So Starting the story off, like I said, this is going to be another child murder story. So if that's a little too heavy for you, feel free to Goodbye. skip the rest of this episode and we will see you next week when we hopefully have some lighter fare. We'll see. You're on a child death streak, Stephanie. So, so here we go. On May 5th of 1993, three eight-year-old boys were reported missing in West Memphis, Arkansas. The boys' names were Steve Branch. Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. The first report to police was made by Byers' adoptive father, John Mark Byers, around 7 p.m. The boys were allegedly last seen together by three neighbors who, in affidavits, told of seeing them playing together around 6.30 p.m. on the evening that they disappeared and seeing Terry Hobbs, Steve Branch's stepfather, calling them to come home. Initial police searches made that that uh, made that night were limited. Friends and neighbors also conducted a search that night, which included a cursory visit to the location where the bodies were later discovered. Oh no. A more thorough police search for the children began around 8 a.m. on May 6th, led by Crittenden County Search and Rescue personnel. Searchers canvassed all of West Memphis but focused primarily on Robin Hood Hills, where the boys were reported last seen. Despite a shoulder-to-shoulder search of Robin Hood Hills by by a human chain, searchers found no sign of the missing boys at that time. Around 1.45 p.m., juvenile parole officer Steve Jones spotted a boy's black shoe floating in a muddy creek that led to a major drainage canal in Robin Hood Hills. A subsequent search of the ditch revealed the bodies of the three boys. Oh, okay. They had been stripped naked and were hogtied with their own shoelaces. What? Their right ankles tied to their right wrists behind their back, the same with their left arms and legs. Their clothing was found in the creek, some of it twisted around sticks that had been thrust into the muddy ditch bed. The clothing was mostly turned inside out. Two pairs of the boys' underwear were never recovered. Christopher Byers had lacerations to various parts of his body, and mutilation to his genitals. Oh, no. The autopsies by forensic pathologist Frank J. Peretti indicated that Byers died of multiple injuries, while Moore and Branch died of multiple injuries with drowning. Police initially suspected the boys had been sexually assaulted. However, later expert testimony disputed this finding. Trace amounts of sperm DNA were found on a pair of pants recovered from the scene. Prosecution experts claim Byers' wounds were the results of a knife attack and that he had purposefully, uh, he had been purposefully castrated by the murderer. (gasps) 
Defense experts claim the injuries were most likely the result of post-mortem animal predation. So they don't think that he was castrated. They think he was chewed on by wild animals. Oh. Police believe the boys were assaulted and killed at the location where they were found. Critics agree uh, argued that the assault, at least, was unlikely to have occurred at the creek, that they were most likely to have been moved there. Okay. Byers was the only victim with drugs in his system. He was prescribed Ritalin, remember he was eight, in January of 1993 as part of a treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The initial autopsy report describes the drug as carbamazepine and the dosage at a sub-therapeutic level. His father said Byers may not have taken his prescription that day. So mm. his his toxicity levels showed that his medication less was not he what have, it would have yeah. been expected. So this, the, the three children, we'll talk a little bit about them. Steve Edward uh, Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore were all second graders at Weaver Elementary School. Each had achieved the rank of wolf at the local Cub Scout pack, and they were best friends. Steve Branch was the son of Stephen and Pamela Branch, who divorced when he was an infant, and his mother was awarded custody and later married Terry Hobbs. Branch was eight years old, four foot two, weighed 65 pounds, and had blonde hair. He was last seen wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt and riding a black and red bicycle. He was an honor student. He lived with his mother, Pamela Hobbs, his stepfather, Terry Hobbs, and his four-year-old half-sister, Amanda. Steve Edward Branch is buried at Mount Zion Cemetery in Steele, Missouri. Christopher Byers was born to Melissa Defer and Ricky Murray. His parents divorced when he was four years old. Shortly afterward, his mother married John Mark Byers, who adopted him. Byers was eight years old, four feet tall, and weighed 52 pounds and had light brown hair. He was last seen wearing blue jeans, dark shoes, a white long sleeve t-shirt. He lived with his mother, Sharon Melissa Byers, his adopted father, John Mark Byers, his stepbrother, Sean Ryan Clark, age 13. According to his mother, Christopher was a typical eight-year-old boy. He still believed in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Christopher Mark Byers is buried in Forest Hill Cemetery East in Memphis, Tennessee. James Michael Moore, who went by his middle name Michael, was the son of Todd and Dana Moore. He was eight years old, four foot two, weighed 55 pounds, and had brown hair. He was last seen wearing blue pants, a Boy Scouts of America shirt, an orange and blue Boy Scout hat, and riding a light green bicycle. Moore enjoyed wearing his Scout uniform even when he was not at meetings. He was considered the leader of the three. He lived with his parents and his nine-year-old sister Dawn. James Michael Moore is buried in Crittenden Memorial Cemetery in Marion, Arkansas. In 1994, a memorial was erected for the three murder victims. The memorial is located in the playground of Weaver Elementary School in West Memphis, where all three victims were second graders at the time of the crime. In May 2013, for, uh, May 2013, for the 20th anniversary of the murders, Weaver Elementary School principal Sheila Grisham raised funds to refurbish the memorial. So, who are the suspects? What happened? Yeah. At the time of... So, there were three suspects who were arrested pretty quickly. They were three teenage boys. At the time of their arrest, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. was 17 years old. Jason Baldwin was 16 years old. And Damian Eccles was 18 years old. Baldwin and Eccles had previously been arrested for vandalism and shoplifting, respectively, and Miss Kelly had a reputation for his temper and for engaging in fistfights with other teenagers at the school. Mm -hmm. Not with young boys. Yeah. 
Miss Kelly and Eccles have dropped out of high school. However, Baldwin earned high grades and demonstrated a talent for drawing and sketching and was encouraged by one of his teachers to study graphic design in college. Eccles and Baldwin were close friends and bonded over their similar tastes in music and fiction and over their shared distaste for the prevailing cultural climate of West Memphis situated in the Bible Belt. Baldwin and Eccles were acquainted with Miss Kelly from school, but were not close friends with him. They were all goth kids who listened to metal and liked a lot of Stephen King. And that was like their thing. And that's why they were like, it had to have been these guys because they like spooky stuff. Yes. Did they get charged? We're going to get into that. What? Eccles' family was poor and received frequent visits from social workers, and he rarely attended school. He and his girlfriend had run off and later broken into a trailer during a rainstorm. They were arrested, though only Eccles was charged with burglary. Eccles spent several months in a mental institution in Arkansas and afterward received full disability status, a status from, social, uh, from the Social Security Administration. There were other people that were kind of investigated. There was Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. Uh, they were looked at very early in the in the investigation. They both had like criminal drug offenses, but one of them had had moved to California like just before the day that the boys were murdered. Hmm. And the other one took a polygraph test and his polygraph test came back clean. So they were like not worried about it. Yeah. There were, so that same night, there was an incident that happened near where the boys' bodies were discovered at a local Bojangles. Okay. The sighting of a black male as a possible alternate suspect was implied during the beginning of the, of the trial. According to local West Memphis police officers, on the evening of May 5th, 1993 at 8.42 p.m., Workers in the Bojangles restaurant, located about a mile from the crime scene in Robin Hood Hills, reported seeing a black male who seemed mentally disoriented inside the restaurant's ladies' room. The man was bleeding and had brushed against the restroom walls. Officer Regina Meeks responded to the call, taking the restaurant manager's report through the drive through window. But then the man had left. The police did not enter the restroom. They did not do an investigation, take a blood sample. They didn't look at anything. Nothing. They were just like, okay, well, he left. I guess everything's fine. Ugh. The day after the victim's bodies were found, Bojangles manager Marty King, thinking there was a possible connection to the bleeding man from the bathroom, reported the incident to the police officers again, who then inspected the ladies' room. The man reportedly wore a blue cast-type brace on his arm that had a white Velcro on it, uh, which would have made it difficult to tie up and murder three young boys. Mm -hmm. But King gave the officers a pair of sunglasses he thought the man had left behind, and detectives took some blood samples from the walls and tiles of the restroom. Police detective Bryn Ridge testified that he later lost those blood scrapings. Of course he did. A hair identified as belonging to a black male was later recovered from a sheet wrapped around one of the victims. What? But that's the most they ever investigated of that. What? Yes. Why? Because police officers James Sudbury and Steve Jones felt the crime had cult overtones 
and that Damien Eccles might be a suspect because he had an interest in occultism and James felt Eccles was capable of murdering children. What? He just ha- he had a feeling because of his interests. He liked horror movies and he liked scary metal bands and he liked Stephen King. So he's interested in that kind of stuff. I hate it here. This, this was how people thought during Satanic Panic. Of course. This was very yeah. real. Yep. The police interviewed Eccles on May 7th, two days after the bodies were discovered. During a polygraph examination, he denied any involvement. The polygraph examiner claimed that Eccles' chart indicated deception, which we all know how reliable those are. Yep. On May 9th, during a formal interview by Detective Bryn Ridge, Eccles mentioned that one of the victims had wounds around his genitals. Law enforcement viewed this knowledge as incriminating. Like, the fact that he knew that means he had to have known that from being there. Hmm. But I'm like, but was that information But was it in the news? Yeah. After a month had passed with little progress in the case, police continued to focus their investigation upon Eccles, interrogating him more frequently than any other person. Nonetheless, they claimed he was not regarded as a direct suspect, but a source of information. Sure, okay. On He's June, just our dramaturg. On June 3rd, the police interrogated Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. Despite his reported IQ of 72, categorizing him as borderline intellectually functioning, and his status as a minor, Miss Kelly was questioned alone. <gasps> his parents nor his attorney were present during the interrogation. Miss Kelly's father gave permission for Miss Kelly to go with the police, but did not explicitly give permission for his son to be questioned or interrogated. Miss Kelly was questioned for roughly 12 hours. Now, I don't know what you know about false confessions. I don't know if y'all watched uh, Making a Murderer, but you put a person. Yep. In a room. In a room, especially a person with a lower IQ who may be highly susceptible to influence. You lock them in a room for 12 hours and tell them they can't leave until they tell you that they did this and that's the only time they're going to leave this room. Guess what they're going to tell you? They're going to tell you they did it so that they can leave. Only two segments. Now, remind you, he was questioned for 12 hours. Only two segments totaling 46 minutes were recorded. (gasps) So they only recorded 46 minutes of the 12 hours that they interrogated him. Were they beating him? We don't know. We don't know. It wasn't recorded. So he made a confession, but quickly recanted, citing intimidation, coercion, fatigue, veiled threat, and veiled threats from the police. Miss Kelly specifically said that he was scared of the police during his confession. Mm Mm-hmm. Though he was informed of his Miranda rights, Miss Kelly later claimed he did not fully understand them. In 1996, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled that Miss Kelly's confession was voluntary and that he did, in fact, understand the Miranda warning and its consequences. <gasps> A 16-year-old with an IQ of 72. They're wow. like, no, he knew what he was doing when he like, told them. Like, no, 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 we already found our scapegoats. We're not going to change our narrative. Portions of Miss Kelly's statements to the police were leaked to the press and reported on the front page of the Memphis Commercial Appeal before any of the trials began. They posted in the newspaper that he had confessed. (gasps) 
Shortly after Miss Kelly's first confession, police arrested Eccles and his close friend Baldwin. Eight months after his original confession, on February 17, 1994, Miss Kelly made another statement to police. His lawyer, Dan Stidham, remained in the room and continually advised Miss Kelly not to say anything. Miss Kelly ignored this advice and went on to detail how the boys were abused and murdered. So he gave a second confession. With his lawyer With there, With his lawyer why? present telling him not to say anything. So, okay. Why? Because he thought he was doing what he was supposed to do. There are a lot of theories as to why. Are any of them that he did do it? Or that he was there? That is a theory, but it's not a very strong one. Wow. Okay. Uh, Stidham, who was later elected to a municipal judgeship, has written a detailed critique of what he asserts are major police errors and misconceptions during their investigation. Stidham made similar comments during a radio show interview in May of 2010. There's also Vicki Hutchison. She was a new resident of West Memphis at the time, but she would play an important role in the investigation, though she would later recant her testimony, claiming her statements were fabricated due in part to coercion from the police. On May 6, 1993, before the victims were found later on the same day, Hutchison took a polygraph exam by Detective Don Bray at the Marion Police Department to determine whether or not she had stolen money from her West Memphis employer. Hutchison's young son, Aaron, was also present and proved such a distraction that Bray was unable to administer the polygraph. Aaron, a playmate of the murdered boys, mentioned to Bray that the boys had been killed at the playhouse, quote unquote. When the bodies proved to have been discovered near where Aaron indicated, Bray asked Aaron for further details, and Aaron claimed that he had witnessed the murders committed by Satanists who spoke Spanish. Aaron's further statements were wildly inconsistent, and he was unable to identify Baldwin Eccles or Miss Kelly from photo lineups. There was no playhouse at the location Aaron indicated, and a police officer leaked portions of Aaron's statements to the press, contributing to the growing belief that the murders were part of a satanic rite. Uh, Okay. On or about June 1st, 1993, Hutchison agreed to police suggestions to place hidden microphones in her home during an encounter with Eccles. Why they had her bring him over to her, I don't understand. Yeah. But Miss Kelly agreed to introduce Hutchison to Eccles. During their conversation, Hutchison reported that Eccles made no incriminating statements. Police said the recording was inaudible, but Hutchison claimed the recording was clear. On June 2nd, 1993, Hutchison told police that about two weeks after the murders were committed, she, Eccles, and Miss Kelly attended a Wiccan meeting in Terrell, Arkansas. I saw Goody Proctor with the devil. Hutchison claimed that the Wiccan meeting, a drunken Eccles openly bragged about killing three boys. Miss Kelly was first questioned on June 3rd, 1993, a day after Hutchison's purported confession. Hutchison was unable to recall the Wiccan meeting location and did not name any other participants in the purported meeting. Hmm. Hutchison was never charged with theft. She claimed she had implicated Eccles and Miss Kelly to avoid facing criminal charges and to obtain a reward for the discovery of the murderers. (gasps) She got a reward? I doesn't say that she got a reward, but I think there was a reward, and she was like, "I know information because she's trying to get the reward." Yeah, yes. So, 
Ultimately, a trial was brought up against all three of the teenagers. Miss mm. Kelly, who had provided his confession twice, was tried separately, and Eccles and Baldwin were tried together in 1994. Under the Bruton rule, Miss Kelly's confession could not be admitted against his co-defendants because it was a separate trial. Thus, he, that's why he was tried separately. All three defendants pleaded not guilty. At Miss Kelly's trial, Richard Offshe, an expert on false confessions and police coercion, and a professor of sociology at UC Berkeley, testified that the brief recording of Miss Kelly's interrogation was a classic example of police coercion. coercion. Critics have also stated that Miss Kelly's various confessions were in many respects inconsistent with each other, as well as with the particulars of the crime scene and the murder victims, including, for example, a quote-unquote admission that Miss Kelly watched Damien rape one of the boys. Police had initially suspected that the victims had been assaulted because their because their anuses were dilated. Mm. However, there's no forensic evidence indicating that the boys had been assaulted. Dilation of the anus is a normal what happens when you condition. die because you yes. poop. That's that's not because you poop, but you that's poop because you of poop that. Because right, your butt way. You says, poop because your your butt opens up. Because your body's finally like, oh, I can relax. It releases everything, right? So that was our a, whole lives. We just have clenched buttholes. Whole lives. That's why we're so angry all the time. Is because we're constantly got a tight butthole. So that wasn't something that had happened to yeah. them. That's yeah, a yeah. normal part of what the body does. After Absolutely. It dies. On February fifth, nineteen ninety four. Miss Kelly was convicted by a jury of one, for one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. The court sentenced him to life plus 40 years. What? Yes. Oh, my gosh. And he didn't even do it. Eccles and Baldwin's trial took place three weeks later. The prosecution accused the three young men of committing a satanic murder. The prosecution called Dale W. Griffiths, a graduate of the unaccredited Columbia Pacific University, as an expert in the occult to testify that the murders were a satanic ritual. Was he there? <laughs> How does he know? Was he there? On March 19th, 1994, Eccles and Baldwin were found guilty. What? On three counts of murder. All, they got all three of them as guilty. The court sentenced Eccles to death <gasps> and Baldwin to life in prison. Why him to death? They felt like he was more they flipped a coin in some capacity, that he was the leader of the group of the three of them. Mind you, they're all 17, 18 years old. Yes. Do they kill him? Does he die? www.doesthedefendantdie.com Well, does he? Do you want me to answer right now or do you want me to finish? Okay, finish. At the trial, the defense team argued that the news articles from the time could have been the source for Eccles' knowledge about what happened, right? Because they were like, you knew he reads about the, the genital mutilation. Right. Eccles said his knowledge was limited to what was on the TV, to what he heard on the news. The prosecution claimed that Eccles' knowledge was nonetheless too close to the facts since there was no public reporting of the drowning of the one victim uh, or the one that had been mutilated, like the, uh, like the others, more than the others, rather. Eccles testified that Detective Ridge's description of their earlier conversation, which was not recorded. Of course not. Regarding those particular events was inaccurate, and indeed that some other claims by Ridge were lies. 
Mara Leverett, an investigative journalist and the author of The Devil's Knot, argues that Eccles' information may have come from police leaks, such as Detective Gitchell's comments to Mark Byers that circulated amongst the local public. The defense team objected when the prosecution attempted to question Eccles about his past violent behaviors, but the defense objections were overruled. There have been widespread criticism of the handling of the crime scene by police. Ms. Kelly's former attorney, attorney, Dan Stidham, cites multiple substantial police errors at the crime scene, characterizing it as literally trampled, especially in the creek bed. Oh, the bodies, he said, had been removed from the water before the coroner arrived to (gasps) examine the scene and determine the state of rigor mortis, allowing the bodies to decay on the creek bank and to be exposed to sunlight and insects. Wow. The police did not telephone the coroner until almost two hours after the discovery of the floating shoe, resulting in a late appearance by the coroner. Officials failed to drain the creek in a timely manner and secure possible evidence in the water. The creek was sandbagged after the bodies were pulled from the water. Stidham has called the coroner's investigation extremely substandard. There was a small amount of blood found at the scene that was never tested. According to HBO documentaries, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills, 1996, and Paradise Lost 2, Revelations, 2000, no blood was found at the crime scene, indicating that the location where the bodies were found was not the The location where the murders actually happened. After the initial investigation, the police failed to control disclosure of information and speculation about the crime scene. According to Leverett, police records were a mess. To call them disorderly would be putting it mildly. Leverett speculated that the small local police force was overwhelmed by the crime, which was unlike any they had ever investigated. Police refused an unsolicited offer of aid and consultation from the violent crime experts at the Arkansas State Police, and critics suggested this was due to the local police department being under investigation by the Arkansas State Police for suspected theft from the Crittenden County Drug Task Force. Oh, so, yeah, so the police did a bad job because they're bad guys, and and we already knew they were bad guys. Leverett further noted that some of the physical evidence was stored in paper sacks obtained from a supermarket. Oh, my gosh. With supermarket's name printed on the bags rather than in evidence bags. Oh, my gosh. Yes. When police speculated about the assailant, the, uh, the assailant, the juvenile probation officer assisting at the scene of the murder speculated that Eccles was, quote, capable of committing the murders, stating, it looks like Damien Eccles finally killed someone because he was known as being like a A tough teen who got in trouble and was weird. Oh, my gosh. Brent Turvey, a forensic scientist and criminal profiler, stated in the film Paradise Lost 2 that human bite marks could have been left on at least one of the victims. However, these potential bite marks were first noticed in photographs years after the trials and were not inspected by board-certified medical examiner until four years after the murder. The defense's expert testified that the mark in question was not an adult bite mark, while experts put on by the state concluded that there was no bite mark at all. The state's experts had examined the actual bodies for any marks, and others conducted expert photo analysis of injuries. Upon further examination, it was concluded that if these marks were bite marks, they did not match the teeth of any of the three people convicted. (sighs) Okay. 
In May of 1994, the three defendants appealed their convictions. The convictions at this point were upheld on direct appeal. Wow. Okay. In June 1996, Miss Kelly's lawyer, Dan Steidem, was preparing an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2007, so 13 years later, Eccles petitioned for a retrial based on a statute permitting post-conviction testing of DNA evidence due to the technological advances made since 1994, which might provide exoneration for the wrongfully convicted. The petition failed when the original trial judge, Judge David Burnett, disallowed presentation of this information into his court. The ruling was in turn thrown out by the Arkansas Supreme Court as all three defendants on November 4th, 2010. So at least by 2010, still in prison for wow. this crime from 1993. Yeah. I, uh... There were all kinds of other evidence. There was a suggestion that the knife used was actually the knife of the adopted father of Christopher Byers, John Mark Byers. He apparently had some fancy knife that went missing, and they were like, maybe he did it. He had a fancy knife. Like, that's a theory. The teeth imprints, people were really concerned about that. They were like, why don't we figure out who the teeth belong to? Like, who bit him? And there was an idea that, again, that it was John Mark Byers because it was a weird teeth imprint, and he had teeth that were missing that he had pulled because he had periodontal disease. Um, so it was like more stuff pointing at like a stepfather. But as more and more evidence came up, none of it pointed at the three people who were doing time yeah, for been these convicted. murders. So on October 29th, 2007, papers were filed in federal court by Eccles defense lawyers seeking a retrial or his immediate release from prison. The filing cited DNA evidence linking a man named Terry Hobbs the stepfather of one of the victims, to the crime scene. And new statements from Hobbs, now ex-wife, also presented in the filing, was new expert testimony that the supposed knife marks on the victims, including the injuries to Byers' genitals, were in fact the result of animal predation after the bodies had been dumped. Yeah. So that wasn't from being assaulted. It wasn't from that, yeah. It was from animals. Yeah. On September 10th, 2008, Circuit Court Judge David Burnett denied the request for a retrial, citing that the DNA test was inconclusive. Mm. That ruling was appealed to the Arkansas Supreme Court, which heard oral arguments on the case in September 30th of 2010. On November 4th, 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court ordered a lower judge to consider whether newly analyzed DNA evidence might exonerate the three. The justices also instructed the lower court to examine claims of misconduct by the jurors who sentenced Damian Eccles to death and Jesse Miss Kelly and Jason Baldwin to life in prison. In early December 2010, David Burnett was elected to the Arkansas State Senate. So the judge that would not rehear their stuff, he was moved to the uh, Arkansas State Senate. So they're definitely not going to hear their stuff. Circuit Court Judge David Lasser was selected to replace David Burnett and preside in the evidentiary hearings mandated by the successful plea appeal. After weeks of negotiations, on August 19th, 2011, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly were released from prison as part of a plea deal making the hearings ordered by the Arkansas Supreme Court unnecessary. The three entered into unusual 
Alfred plea deals. Do you remember the Alfred plea? I do. So we talked about the Alfred plea when we talked about Michael Peterson. Yep. And an Alfred plea is basically where you are saying, I did not do this. I am not guilty, but I'm willing to concede that the state has enough evidence to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that I did that it. That it was me. Even yeah. if I didn't do it. Yeah. All three of them took Alfred pleas. The Alfred plea is a legal mechanism that allows defendants to plead guilty while still asserting their innocence. Stephen Braga, an attorney with Ropes and Gray, who took up Eccles' defense on a pro bono basis beginning in 2009, negotiated the plea agreement with the prosecutors. Hmm. Under the deal, Judge David Lasser vacated the previous convictions, including the capital murder convictions for Eccles and Baldwin, and ordered a new trial. Each man then entered an Alfred plea to lesser charges of first and second degree murder while verbally stating their innocence. Judge Lasser then sentenced them to time served, a total of 18 years and 78 days, and they were each given a suspended imposition of a sentence of 10 years. If they re-offend, which they didn't pre-offend. They didn't do it, yeah. They can be sent back to prison for 21 years or more. Factors cited by prosecutor Scott Ellington for agreeing to the plea deal included that two of the victims' families had joined the cause of the defense. So two of they the were families like, they were didn't like, do I it. don't think these people killed our children. Yeah. That the mother of a witness who testified about Eccles' confession had questioned her daughter's truthfulness, and that the state crime lab employee who collected fiber evidence at the Eccles and Baldwin homes after the arrests had died. As part of the plea deal, the three men cannot pursue civil action against the state for wrongful imprisonment. What? They lost their lives, like their whole lives. Many of the men's supporters and opponents who will still believe them are guilty were unhappy with the unusual plea deal. In 2011, supporters pushed by uh, pushed Arkansas Governor Mike Beebe to pardon Eccles, Baldwin and Miss Kelly based on their innocence. Beebe said he would deny the request unless there was evidence showing someone else committed the murders. Oh. Prosecutor Scott Ellington said that the Arkansas State Crime Laboratory would help seek other suspects by running searches on any DNA evidence produced in private laboratory tests during the defense team's investigation. This would include running the results through the FBI's combined DNA index system database. Ellington said that although he still considered the men guilty, the three would likely be acquitted if a new trial were held because of the powerful legal counsel representing them now, the loss of evidence over time, and the change of heart of some of the witnesses. The families of the three victims were divided on their opinions of the guilt or innocence of the West Memphis Three. In 2000, the biological father of Christopher Byers, Rick Murray, expressed his doubts about the guilty verdicts of the Memphis Three website. In 2007, Pamela Hobbs, the mother of victim Stevie Branch, joined those who have publicly questioned the verdicts, calling for a reopening of the verdicts and further investigation of the evidence. In late 2007, John Mark Byers, who was previously vehement in his belief that Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin were guilty, also announced that he now believes they are innocent. Oh. I had made the comment, if it were ever proven that the three were innocent, I'd be the first to leave the charge of their freedom, said Byers, and take every opportunity that I have to voice that the West Memphis Three are innocent and that the evidence and proof prove that they are innocent. Byers has spoken to the media on behalf of the convicted and has expressed his desire for justice for the families of both the victims 
and the three accused. Wow. They're victims of the police. They're victims of the police. They're victims of the system. They're victims of the state. But they served over 18 years for a crime that it is they pretty commit. well agreed that they did not commit. That's disgusting. Yes. I hate that. That's so gross. www.doesthedefendantdie.com. No, he didn't die, but he did spend 18 years of his life in prison for a murder that he didn't commit. Yes. All three of them did. I hate that. Yeah. I hate this place. Now, I remember hearing about this. I was probably, when I first heard of them, I was probably like 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. So that was 1999, 2000, when that was really being brought up. And I remember like, that was the first... For me, that was, like, the first case of, like, wrongful imprisonment, I guess, that I was really, like, wow. Oh, my gosh. People could go to prison for stuff they didn't do. Yeah. It hits you. It hits me. And I think I've mentioned this before when we've talked about uh, O.J. Simpson. But I remember the O.J. Simpson trial when I was very little. Um, That was probably when I was, like, five or six when that was going on. And I remember when it ended and saying something to my mom where I was, like, I just was like, you know, but he didn't do it, right? Like, they said he didn't do it. And my mom was like, no, they found him not guilty. Doesn't mean. That doesn't mean he didn't do it. it, Right. (laughs) She was trying to explain to me, like, it means that they couldn't prove that he did it. But that doesn't mean he didn't do it. Yeah. They just couldn't prove he did. Yep. And I was like, that can happen. (laughs) Yes, all of it. It's all scary. Now I'm older and... (laughs) Now I'm older and I was like, that can happen to a black man that he did it and they didn't find him guilty as opposed to the opposite. It can if you have enough money. But ultimately, the West Memphis Three were released, but on Alfred Pleas. They were never pardoned for the 18 years that they spent in prison. And like I said, as a part of the Alfred Pleal, they can never sue for wrongful imprisonment. Disgusting. It's disgusting. Disgusting. That's the American justice system. Wow. That's a real scary story. Yeah, man. So that's that story. They're alive. They're out of prison now, which is good. But yeah, wild, wild story. And, and basically we don't know who actually killed the, those babies. We never will know who actually killed those children. And they were mostly guilty, found guilty because of their interests in spooky stuff. Spooky shit. <sighs> Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. Didn't we used to do that. We used to do this stories like this, episodes like this, where like the first story is like kind of funny yeah, and light, yeah, and then like, gets you like, ready for like the heavy second story. Uh, uh, I was just thinking that earlier. I was like, we used to do it like this. Uh, I want to thank you so much for supporting our podcast. There are so many ways that you can help us out. We would love it, love it, love it if you would subscribe to our Patreon. There are different tiers, and you can help us out regularly every month. Or you could purchase some merch from our website, deadtimestories with a z.com. You can email us, deadtimestories at gmail.com. Or the other way, that's free, but the other way you can support us that costs absolutely no money but is so, so, so much help for us is if you give us a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, anywhere where you listen to this podcast, please give us a five-star review. That's how people find us. That's how you spread the word about deadtime stories. Yep. It helps out immensely. Immensely. 
Thank you so much. Thank Do you it. so much for listening. You know, we'll Thank let you, you go so you can show. go write a review. There you go. go I'm go get Stephanie. To it. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman.